welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. I hate the people who talk about it all the time, so I didn't want to be one of those people. From two guys who study the markets as a passion. Can I count on you to talk me off the ledge, partner? Yes, and that's what this podcast is for. And trade for all the right reasons. That's my due diligence. I'm in. Dude, if you're in, I'm in. A line of thinking is the higher the volatility on an asset, the higher the volatility on the opinions. So I feel like you have crazies on both sides. Here's your host of Animal Spirits, Michael Batnick. I can say that I was never driven by money. So you were trading three times the leverage ETFs for the love of the game. Exactly, man. <laughs> I, I'm a purist. But anyway. <laughs> and Ben Carlson. This is true. I do not drink coffee. I've never been on Facebook. I've never done fantasy football. Oh, one last thing. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Now, today's show. Okay, welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. On today's show, we have a very special guest. We have the CEO of Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, we're pushing for an activist stake in the fund, actually. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is Morningstar had a piece this morning on AQR, and he called them the vanguard of alternatives. This was John Reckenthaler, by the way. Yeah, and you and I have, have actually said that to each other for a long time now. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, his this was a good piece, and there were some numbers in here that I really wasn't aware of. So this was this was kind of interesting. First of all, I didn't realize I kind of thought AQR had more. So for those of you who don't know, AQR is a quantitative research firm based in Chicago, founded by Cliff Asnes, who we've talked about before. But they have twenty nine billion dollars in alternative assets, which I I thought was on the low end because they have almost two hundred billion in total. Wait, so what? How many? I'm, I missed that. Sorry, I already I already tuned out. Yeah, that was quick. They, it says it's so it says Vanguard, BlackRock, Fidelity, Capital Research, and T. Rowe Price have a grand total of seven billion dollars in alternative mutual funds, but AQR has twenty nine billion, which I assumed AQR had more in alternatives because they have almost two hundred billion in total, so they must have a lot of long only products as well. Yeah, I guess so. That's interesting. But wait, so say that one more time. That's a crazy number. Yeah, they have so those five or six other firms combined only have seven billion, and AQR is twenty nine. And Reckenthaler made the point that they're probably the vanguard of the alternative business, which again is much smaller than your typical long only ETFs or mutual funds, but that's still pretty impressive. Yeah. So Reckenthaler said that staying cheap is not hard, uh, alluding to Vanguard. Staying number one most certainly is referring to AQR's performance. And I didn't realize this, but he said that AQR won the old fashioned way. Its funds beat everybody else's. The long short equity finished first in its category. The market neutral was first in its category. And the style premium alternative, and I don't know what that is, but it sounds very alpha-y. That's basically all their different factors, value, momentum, quality, low vol, and a market neutral form. In one? Yeah. They take all their factors and it's market neutral and they weight them. They have a certain way that they weight them. It's kind of an interesting fund. The funny thing is, I think a lot of these funds are actually closed. So so that's great that they've had outperformance, but if you 
if you're, you haven't been in before, you probably can't get in them anymore anyway. So one of the things that Reichenthaler didn't touch on, just because at some point you got to end the article, was I think one of the reasons why AQR has been so successful is because what they do is systematic. So right. it's not Cliff or any of his co-founders scratching their chin and, and reading the tea leaves or anything like that. Everything that they do is probably humming on autotune at this point. Yeah. I went to a talk in Detroit last week to watch Josh Brown give a speech to the CFA Society, and he made the good point that people debate about this passive versus active debate, but really, it's not passive versus active. It's faith-based versus systematic, and systematic is winning. And that's why you see AQR get all these assets, which makes sense. So in 2014, I think Josh and I had a, a wholesaler come in, which we don't do that often for the following reason. This was a, I think it was an ETF company, or they package ETFs, but it was it was a tactical company. And this guy told us that they have 19 variables or 19 inputs into their model, but if something's happens, they'll take care of it. Of course. And, and Josh and I looked at each other like, wait, say that one more time? Yeah. And the guy goes, yeah, we have 19 inputs, but you know, if something happens, we'll do what we got to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which is, yeah, defeats the purpose of quantitative investing when the person overrides the system that they built. And speaking of Cliff, there was another article about him this morning from Bloomberg. And he said that active, not passive, is too big. And here's a quote from Cliff. We're not one of the people who are worried that the world is about to end because we have gone from around 20% to 40% passive. I think there are too many of us being active to begin with. So... I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it kind of gets back to your point of the reason why this bull market is just not any fun for anyone because the asset managers really aren't taking part. And I think he, he said, and he says at the end, history is on the side of passive and that will continue. For those people who think that this is just a fad and it's going to run its course, I, yeah, I just don't see how that happens. And sticking with the product side, there was a, an article on ETF.com last week, ETF price war heats up. Did you see this one? Nope. I did not. So, same sort of story that we've been hearing about for the last few years. Here's a few quotes. This is just sort of wild. It tells you a lot about the environment that we're in. An expense ratio of 0.20%. I'm sticking with my um, not saying basis points. So, an expense ratio of 0.2% is now expensive in the US ETF landscape. Can you imagine? That's pretty crazy. It, and the the crazy thing is, so I tweeted out this story about Vanguard last week too, about how they, they just continue to pile up the money. I think the biggest risk here is that people assume that low-cost products and index funds are safer than other alternatives when, you know, in terms of losses and, and things going against them. I think that's probably the biggest risk here. Like, I, I honestly don't know what's going to happen if we have another downturn. People, Some people think that these firms are going to get crushed and a lot of money is going to flow out. And that's possible. Do you think people are under the illusion that an index fund doesn't give them 100% on the downside? Hopefully not many, but I think there could be some people who think that index funds equal safety, which doesn't make any sense. There's, you're getting the market return. But on the other side of that, yeah, you get. It's, I think that's one of the big benefits of them is they're transparent. You know exactly what you're getting or you should know what you're getting. Yeah. So, so in this article, here's a quote. As of October 31st, 137 ETFs listed on US exchanges carried annual expense ratios of 0.1% or less. These funds hold $1.34 trillion or 41% of all US ETF assets. And 28 of these funds are priced at 0.05% or less. Yeah. Which again, I think this is another case of investors winning because costs are so low and and at some point it becomes, you know, costs don't matter as much anymore and behavior is the true key of, you know, 
are these people actually going to stick with these products or not? And speaking of behavior, our friend Corey Hofstein from Newfound Research has a terrific blog that is often way above my head. But he said something really interesting last week. He was talking about a case overweighting international equities. And I think he was against it. There's a lot of nuance in there, but one of the things that he said that was really interesting was, we would wager that few other arguments have the power to turn off the critical thinking elements of our brain, like valuation. Yeah, that's that was interesting. I, I read that whole piece. You're right. Corey's a very sharp guy, and sometimes that's probably over my head too. But this idea of of like turning off the critical thinking from valuation, it, it's something that people seem to think in extremes on. So if valuations are high, they think you need to get all out. If valuations are low, you need to get all in. But it's like, like as you say, there's there's way more nuance required than that. It's not so simple. There are no formulas when investing that that work all the time. Right. So people will look at either low or high valuation and just make a really extreme statement. So that gets to the behavior part where stocks are expensive. You shouldn't own any or stocks are cheap. Then they're going to get a lot cheaper. Thinking in the middle is a lot better than just pounding the table on stocks are expensive and therefore they're going to crash. Right. Which is why his, his whole point is saying... Here's a caveat to saying that higher dividend yields and lower valuations in international equities means you should overweight them. The, the funny thing is, is, there's always a caveat to these arguments. Like, there's never an all clear signal that's saying, well, you should definitely invest in this lower quality asset because it's going to give you higher returns, or vice versa. You should stick with the more higher quality asset. There's always a reason to not invest in something. It's never going to be that easy. I like higher quality at a lower price when nobody wants them, and it's not too expensive, and the Wall Street Journal is talking about them. And- well, yes. Well, buy when there's blood in the streets, but never fight the trend. Right. Obviously. Ever. Yes. I mean, that's, it's that simple. So you wrote a post a week ago talking about career risk. How does career risk cause market inefficiencies? Well, my personal experience with it has been just looking at the allocation decisions of large institutional investors and nonprofits, there's no way that you can say that markets are completely efficient when you see the way that some of these people allocate their portfolios, whether it's certain products or you know the way that they define asset classes or the managers they invest in. And, and a lot of the times, you know, these people are making decisions that they don't want to do. They're being forced into them because they want to keep their job or because they're getting pressure from above from if it's let's say it's a college endowment and they have someone on their board who works for private equity or hedge fund manager, the person on that board is probably going to get pressured into investing a certain way, and a lot of times they're not going to have you know much say in it because they kind of have to go along to get along. And so my theory is that this idea of career risk plays a huge role in the way that markets are are run because of you know we're kind of run by incentives. So speaking of inefficiencies in the market particularly with respect to career risk. So GE got absolutely annihilated last week when they announced that they were cutting their dividend. But this was long anticipated. This was in the news every single day for the last few weeks. And GE has done really lousy lately. It was down 32% in the year leading up to the dividend cut. And then on that day that they announced the long anticipated dividend cut, it fell 7%. And over the next six days, it's down uh, 10% since the time that they announced that. So I guess one of the ways that, and then this leads people to obviously, you know, oh, markets are efficient, everybody, this is coming in, still this happens. But one of the ways that career risk or incentives can drive inefficiencies in the market is think about all the dividend funds or pensions or institutional money that have it in their mandate that if a company cuts their dividend, then they are for sellers. Yeah. And that is a, a direct way that can cause inefficiencies in the market. Yeah, and I think the other one is is like headline risk. You know, like you said, this was kind of telegraphed and people knew it was happening, but once it hits the headlines and people start making calls and getting worried and seeing stuff, then people overreact and then they get rid of it even when 
like you said, it was kind of, yeah, a forced situation. I mean, so you would think that, and this is certainly not a stock call because we don't do that sort of thing, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, buy GE and hold it and you will be just fine, believe me. Well, the funny thing, I remember during the crisis, I had a friend, this is in like, you know, early 2009, late 2008 saying, you know, I think at the time GE was like 10 and the high was, I don't know, 40 maybe or 50. And he said, if I buy it here and it just gets back to its previous high, I'm going to be a genius. But it's like, hey, guess what? Genius. Stocks don't always have to go back to their their current. And what is it at now? 17 bucks. So obviously, if you would have bought it back then, you would have done okay. But just thinking in that terms of, of buying a company just because it's down, that's not the same as buying an asset class that's down. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Yep. Okay. So there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal last week by a guy named James McIntosh about how IPOs are dying and the fact that the companies in the, in the stock market are shrinking. So I think since what, you know, 1997, the number of publicly traded stocks has got cut in half which is kind of interesting. A lot of people have been talking about it lately, but he looked at it from a different angle. So what did you think about this one? Yeah. So I think that what he spoke about was the, the pressure for being public. And here's a quote from the article. Takeovers aren't the full story though. In the past two decades, money has flooded into venture capital and private equity with buyout funds now sitting on a record $954 billion available for deals which is, oh my God, that's a lot of money. He goes on to say that the small company CEO can choose between an IPO and selling to private funds and private money's more easily available than ever before. Why bother to list? Yeah. So the idea is that the reason that there's fewer companies is because these smaller ones are, are not coming public. And so there was actually a follow-up piece, well, maybe it wasn't a follow-up, but an institutional investor by Julie Siegel. And she talked to a guy who's the head of the portfolio research at Vanguard. And he basically said, you know, we look, we took a long look at this and the fall off in the number of public companies, it's exclusively limited to micro caps. So they look back and he says that the number of large, mid and small caps is basically consistent to 1979. But in 1979, there was 2000 micro cap companies. Then in 1997, there was over 4000. And now through 2014, which is as far as their research goes, it's back down to like 1500. So basically, we had all these microcap companies go public in the 90s that probably never should have anyway, because there was this huge IPO boom. Ah. Yeah. So the number of public companies has dropped, but it's all microcaps, which make up like 1% of the total market. So it's really not that big of a deal as people are making it out to be. Okay. That's interesting. That's sort of analogous to the really, really long-term chart of interest rates. And you see the spike in the in the late 70s, and that is the anomaly. Lower rates are actually more common. Right. So yeah, so the idea that public companies have been cut in half since the late 90s, the anomaly is not now. The anomaly was then. Right. There, there was probably too many companies that went public back then. And you know, microcaps is an area we've been looking at a lot. Maybe this is something we can talk about in the future, but it's it's kind of an interesting space. But it really, it's not a big deal as people are making it out to be. Yeah. And there is a ton of pressure on public companies. So if there is financing available in the private markets and liquidity there, why would you list? That's a, that's a good point. Right. Yeah. If you have enough backing from other people, you know, most companies don't like the owner's you know, regulations and things they have to go through and reporting quarterly earnings and all that stuff. So one of my favorite pieces that I read in the Wall Street Journal recently came from a friend of the show, Wes Gray, at Elf Architect. And he looked back at a piece of research done by an academic named Lu Zhang, who basically looked at all the different anomalies in the market. These are the things that we study, things like smart beta, value, quality, momentum, but there's a million of them. And this paper actually found that there was 447 market anomalies that are identified by academic literature, which is crazy because 
that's you know and speaking of microcaps what they found was that the majority of these are not really anomalies they don't really work in the real world because he said 54% of them cannot be replicated and if you minimize the effect that small caps have on them and more so microcaps 85% of them can't be replicated so it's all this academic research that looks at these things that could have done well in the past basically back tests and found that trying to run real money with them is impossible. Wait, 447 anomalies? Yeah, from academic literature. So these are professors that are putting this out there saying, hey, if you would have done this, you would have outperformed the market. But oh, by the way, it would have been impossible to do in real life and scale because of microcaps and small caps, and it really just didn't work. Wait, how do they know that there's 447? Is there like a, a, a Google Doc that these academics share? To list the 447, like who? Well, they no, they went they went through all these papers. These are actually pa- research papers that were written, and they decided to test them, and they found out that only 15 percent of them could be replicated. Which uh, this is kind of interesting because you and I are huge on back tests. Like we do a lot of back testing s- strategies. So I thought this is a good you know way to introduce like what's the good and bad of back testing. Like when you go through a back test. What are you looking for as far as turning it into real life? Yeah, I think for you and I, we're, and we're doing very, very simple sort of things. And even when there's even, even like one or two or three rules, it gets very complicated quickly. So we have grown incredibly skeptical of back-tested results. Right, which I think is the, the point of this paper too. That, And I think this is something that novice investors get probably hung up on. They, they back-test something and they look at it going back 10 or 20 years and they say, oh my God, this thing would have crushed the market. Now, if I just do that, I'm going to crush the yeah, market. So, it's, it's never that easy. So, speaking of back tests, did you see that the who was, was it a Da Vinci painting that sold for four hundred fifty million dollars? <laughs> yes. So, if you just put ten thousand dollars, it was, it was into hideous. That painting, by the way, it was not a good looking painting. Okay, not uh, that I'm an art critic, but I thought my my art critique would be it's hideous. Yeah. Go on. So, I was just making a bad joke that the back test of that painting looks fantastic. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, Hey-o. so yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Right, <laughs> So that was one of many signs of froth in the market, that there's too much money out there and we need to cleanse the system. So Jared Dillian tweeted this. He shared a, a Vanity Fair article about WeWork and some of the things that they're getting into. So here's the quote. The Wall Street Journal reported that the company, which has seen its valuation swell to $20 billion, purchased a large stake in WaveGarden, a wave pool startup. Though it remains unclear how WaveGarden's technology, which produces up to eight-foot-high waves for surfing at water facilities, fits with WeWork's common space roots. Now, that is certainly a head-scratcher. <laughs> did you listen to the podcast with the WeWork founder on how I built this? Oh, that was great. I did. Yeah, it was really good. But yeah, this is, this is kind of bizarre. Now, I'm a huge proponent of water parks and wave pools, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't see the... Uh, I don't. I don't see the fit here. It's that's kind of bizarre. Yeah, no natural synergies for my eyes. But another another quote from the article was: Investors have certainly taken the bait, showering the company with nine point eight billion dollars in funding, including a recent infusion from Japanese tech giant SoftBank, and contributing to WeWork's outsized valuation, which is eight times that of a traditional leasing company with a similar business model. So. There are always signs. I think the Mike Tyson asset management thing from from March was certainly the sign of the times, but that didn't mark the top, so I see no reason why this will. But what was that Mike Tyson thing exactly? I forget that, but that was pretty epic. <laughs> he was trying to roll out a trading strategy, wasn't he? Okay, I would love Was to, that it? Uh, I don't know, yeah. but he was wearing a three-piece suit. We'll track it down and put it in the show notes, but that was pretty funny. But yes, your, your point to the fact that 
anytime you want, you could find a magazine indicator or a headline that fits your narrative with the market. You know, you can find that every week probably these days because there's just so much information out there. Yeah. To be fair though, this is a pretty good one. I mean, eight yeah. foot high waves. Well, yes. And because there's a coming tidal wave in terms of a market crash, so it, it plays well. Yes. And millennials need to surf in, uh, in lunch, during lunch hour. <laughs> yes, exactly. What else we got today? Okay, here's I want to go to the reader mailbag because I got two or three different questions on this and I wanted to hear your thoughts as well. One of them was on Twitter. One of them just asked, you know, since you guys write so much, what is your editing process like? Do you use an editor? How many revisions do you make? Someone else emailed me. How do you recommend finding and focusing on a niche topic or sticking to broad financial topics? You know, how do you come up with content to write about? And we both get a lot of questions from, especially from advisors who want to get into the blogging world. How do you think about writing in, in terms of, incorporating into your business. So I just wanted to hear if you have any thoughts on these before I give my thoughts from the from the reader questions. So I think this this was a phrase, although I uh, my mother used to say it, but I haven't seen it anywhere else. So maybe she made it up. You could see an ant in somebody else, but not an elephant on yourself. So uh, that's a good one. So I'm really good at spotting typos and grammatical errors in other people's posts. But for the life of me, I cannot edit my own posts. Yeah, I'm the same way. I probably get more grammar emails from people than anyone <laughs> than anything else. But I, I think it really depends on what it is. If it's a blog post, I don't care if I have a grammatical error. I, I read it a few times. But again, it, it's a blog post. I don't really care. If it's something you're sending out to clients, you know, we have an editor on our team. Dean Isola actually has had a history of working on the editorial side of financial publications in the past. And she'll look at stuff that we send out to clients or books or white papers or whatever. But I think if it's just a, a blog post, it's not a big deal. In terms of figuring out stuff to write. We get this question a lot, like, how do you come up with stuff to write? How do you figure out what you want to go on? I think it really just comes down to having an interest in the topic and writing about stuff that you would find interesting yourself and just hoping that the readers will come around to it too. Because if you're writing about something and you're not interested in it and you're just going through the motions, you know, the readers are going to know that as well. Yeah. I think it's really hard to step in to the blogging world and develop an audience really quickly, especially in terms of like developing an audience to the, to the point where people are going to give you money because they like your writing. But I guess you got to start somewhere if you're, if you're interested in blogging. But I would also say that it's probably really effective for client communication. So if you have a bunch of clients asking you the same question, instead of having that conversation individually, one-on-one with you know 10 different clients, it could be very effective to communicate with words. So I think that's probably a really good place for advisors to start is to write to their clients. Yeah, yeah. Figure out the biggest questions you get and try to answer them. And then, oh, by the way, you're building up a library to use in the future because guess what? These questions come up over and over again. <laughs> they're, they're not unique. They're, they're fairly similar. They just come up at different points in the cycle that you can reuse and show people, hey, I'm an expert in this field. I know what I'm talking about. That, that's, that's the biggest thing. I agree with that. That's a good way to put it. So last week, you tweeted something about Elon Musk being one of the most polarizing figures in the world right now and my friend john borman tweeted if you hate musk slash tesla then you hate america and all it stands for take a good look at yourself is it really just a stock you're railing against your view of musk probably says more about you than it does him hashtag confess your unpopular opinion and this is uh this is post 140 characters that would not have been possible in in the old world so thank thank you jack and this was probably the most subtweeted thing i've seen in a long time yeah it's my comment was i'm trying to figure out a way a bigger gap in opinions between the tech crowd who just loves elon musk and the finance crowd who seems to hate him or more importantly hate his stock 
So yeah, it, it seems like there, there's this general level of pessimism from the finance people about Tesla and Elon Musk that he's going to save the world, but the tech people think that that that's what he's exactly what he's going to do. But yes, I did I did see a lot of subtweeting for John Borman on this one. I <laughs> I don't really know where I where I fall on this one. Have you read the Elon Musk biography? No, I know Ashley you, you Vance. I did. I honestly came away. Like I wanted to buy a Tesla after I read it, and I came away completely blown away by him. But I also see why people are skeptical. So I'm kind of Switzerland on this one. I I don't know where I stand. Yeah, it's funny because maybe this is a ridiculous comparison, but he has garnered a shareholder base that are really zealots that will probably never sell the stock, even if it comes out that not that this company is a fraud, but but, but whatever. But the financials are terrible. They don't care. They're willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because he is the modern day Edison. So fundamental short sellers like Jim Chanos hate the stock, but the shareholder base seems not to care. And that got me thinking about short sellers in general. Would you rather invest with a short seller who was fundamentally driven, who looked at the story, the balance sheet, the income statement, all those sort of things, and said that this, you know, and and determined that this company is worth 80% less than, than it's selling at? Or would you rather give your money to a technical analyst who just looks at a chart and says, this company, this line is going down and I'm going to short the stock and when it stops going down, I'll get out. That's tough because I think short selling has is, is got to be the hardest form of money management there is, right? The, the deck is totally stacked against you. So honestly, I think if I had to pick a short only fund, I'd probably go for the more concentrated fundamental catalyst driven ones. Just for the fact that I think the trend stuff in terms of technical analysis is probably better for risk management and taking small losses as opposed to finding huge losers, if that makes sense. And you can correct me if I'm wrong there. But there's not an easy way to do this, I think. And that, that's why it's just so hard to... There, there was a interview with David Swenson last week that I pointed out on Twitter where he said that they used a, bench, a hedge fund benchmark of short sellers and it was a composite of different managers and they had to change the benchmark because there aren't any short selling only managers left anymore in the universe. So it's just such a tough ball game to play in if you're a short-only manager. How about you? Yeah, I guess there's a, a lot of nuance here. So it depends what type of market environment you're in. If you're in a bull market or a bear market, I probably in a bull market would rather give my money to a short seller who's using charts only. Yeah, that makes sense. And then it also depends, like, is this 100% of your money? I mean, obviously not. But if it was, say, 10 to 20% of your money, I would probably rather give it to a fundamental short seller. Assume, you know, assuming that the tactical analysts and the fundamental analysts were on even footing in terms of skill. Yeah. But I think we can agree that short selling is, is really, really difficult. And I think that one of the greatest things you can say about Chanos is the fact that he's been able to do it so long and stay in business. Yeah. I think he started his fund in like 1985 and the S&P is up something like 2000 or 3000% since he started. So remarkable hats off to that man. Unbelievable uh, accomplishment. Okay, let's wrap some things up with something we've been watching, reading, listening to lately. So I, I saw a comedy special by a new guy, and I wanted to point it out to you because he makes fun of New Yorkers in it. <laughs> and it's pretty funny. So this guy's name is Ryan Hamilton, and his special is called Happy Face. I'd never heard of this guy. I've never seen him before. Someone recommended it to me. And he's like a guy from a town in Idaho that has like a thousand people, and now he lives in New York. So he says that he thinks everyone who lives in New York lives by the, the Frank Sinatra song, like, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And, and so he said that he, he pictures New Yorkers going to like small towns in the Midwest and saying like, hey, I'm from New York. I'm your mayor. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> and they're like, why? And they're like, he's like, because if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. So I'm from New York City, so I'm your mayor. And the other one was he said that if you live in New York, 
your idea of geography is New York is the East Coast, LA is the West Coast, and everything else is the Midwest, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, that's good. Anyway, check that out. I thought that was pretty funny. Okay, so I um, a few things for me in terms of content that I'm consuming. I love the Netflix Marvel characters, although maybe that's not entirely true. I really like Daredevil. I did not love Jessica Jones or Jessica James, one of those, and I did not really care for Luke Cage, but I started Punisher. I'm five episodes in, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it so far. Do you like those shows? Okay, yeah. I don't really get into them. You're, you're obviously a big comic book guy because that's a few episodes in a row that you've mentioned uh, your love of comic books. I wasn't a... Spider-Man Home... <laughs> yeah, I, did, <laughs> I, didn't read, I didn't read comic books as a kid because I didn't have enough patience to sit still and read those, read those things, but I did like watching Spider-Man and X-Men when I was a youngin. The other show that I started that I'm only two episodes into is Mindhunters. Okay, yeah, I still haven't gotten into it. That's that's on, next on my queue. Okay, two more things. So, Meb's podcast with Claude Herb, who I've never heard of, was definitely one of the better podcasts I've listened to recently. Did you get around to that? I just started it. Okay, really good. And then finally, I got the new Ron Chernow book on Ulysses S. Grant, and I didn't think that I would start reading it because it's like, I think it's literally a thousand pages, but I did start it. And he is just such an incredible author that when I go home, like I want to pick this book up and read. So highly, highly recommend that book. So do you think you'll read all 1,000 pages? Yeah, I'm six something into it. Wow, that's impressive. I'll let you give me the Cliff Notes version. Does he die at the end? I'm, I will not give that away. <laughs> okay. All right. I think that's it for today's show. If you want to comment on us, give us some feedback, send us a question, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.